Is there any hope? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I'll read just a couple of verses there for our introduction. Let's look at verses 18, 19, and 20, where it says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to the hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the context of this would need some explanation, but I'm not going to take the time to do that today, because it's just one verse that I want to look at, and it's verse number 18, well, 18 and 19. It tells us that God cannot lie. And it tells us that because of what he has promised, which is contained in chapter 6 and various places throughout the Bible, that we have a strong consolation. And it also says that we have fled for refuge so that we can lay hold on the hope set before us. Then the 19th verse says that this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It's sure, it's real, and it's steadfast. And then it talks about Christ being our high priest, and that's not our subject today. Hope. Is there any hope? 1927, there was a U.S. submarine not too far from here, just a few hours from here off the coast of Massachusetts, running some tests on its ability to maneuver and speed was the main order of business that day. As they were going about their maneuvering and their training, testing out the sub, it was also on top of the water in the same area, the immediate area, a U.S. Coast Guard destroyer, which was out looking for rum runners at the time. Well, in the course of events, as the Coast Guard destroyer was approaching the same vicinity where the sub was doing its training, it was too late when he saw the periscope come popping up out of the water and was unable to avoid a total collision with the sub. And the sub immediately sank down 110 feet down to the ocean's bottom. Now, for many hours, the Coast Guard and others made a very valiant attempt to rescue the submariners, sailors that were on board the S-4 sub, USS-109. As time was running on and the weather was just not cooperating and the waters were frigid that day, Men were becoming more and more desperate, trying to save these sailors, save these submariners, and all that could be done was being done to save them. It was said that many of the mariners that were in the submarine, or submariners, were not really concerned about the accident because one had taken place not that long before that, and everybody came out of the ship okay, came out of the sub okay. But here it was taking much, much longer and things were not looking so bright. And so they sent another sub down. They would ping messages to each other back and forth. The men trapped inside were asking about what's, you know, what's happening. Messages were being sent back. It was 40 crewmen, crew members. And by the time they were getting to some place where there perhaps was a chance of saving some of these sailors, 34 of them had already passed away. They had already died. There were six men left, were running out of oxygen, wasn't much left to do on top or below. So they tapped out a message in Morse code to their rescuers. Is there any hope? And oddly enough, the message came back from the captain of one of the ships on top. So yes, there's hope, there's hope. We're doing everything possible, but within the space of a few more hours, nothing could be done and all 40 crewmen dying. Now, I bring this true story to you for the reason of pointing out two things. A, it's always in the heart of man to have hope, whether it's your personal life, the country you live in, the world. There's always something men will think of that there's a possibility that this could work out and it'll be all right. But I believe the story shows that man, even at his best attempts, comes up short sometimes. Man's offer of hope sometimes is illusory. I was just rechecking this morning before I came here to preach. 
the fact that heart disease and cancer is number one and two killers in the United States. Heart disease, in fact, worldwide, heart disease is number one. Cancer, number two in the United States. And number three is medical errors. So your doctor, your surgeon, tells you that, yes, there's hope, and you want to believe that. But we're told in the scriptures several times, it's vain to trust in man. And it's not that men don't mean well, that people are not doing the very best that they can. It just means that man is limited. Thankfully, God is not limited. God is not limited. Is there any hope? And the answer came back, yes, there's hope. We're doing everything possible. That gave some assurance to the six men that were left. 34 were already dead. But alas, there was no hope. No hope at all. Now, when we look at the scriptures and we think about this here, again, I point out to you that man's hope can often be, not always, but can often be illusory. We're doing everything possible that makes you feel comforted, but it don't work out so well because man is limited. And again, I want to reiterate the point. It doesn't mean that people aren't trying their best. It doesn't mean that in the case of medicine that they're not giving you the best available information and services that are available. It just simply means that when man makes a guarantee, it's not necessarily a guarantee. But when God, as we read in the scripture here, that God cannot lie and gave us a strong consolation, it means that when God says something, it's going to happen. That we have a strong consolation, and the Bible says that we have fled to it for hope. Now, let me just give you a working definition of the biblical definition of hope. And I've pointed this out in the past, the way we use the phrase, yeah, I hope so. It's going to work out well, I hope so. What we mean is that we don't know. We really don't know how this is going to work out. Now, you have pointed out to you that with man, that's pretty much par for the course. So we're doing all that we can. We've heard that before. In hospital situations, settings, somebody's in peril, grave danger, and we're doing all that we can. But it registers in our minds somewhere that that may not be enough, as it was in the case of the USS 109 and so many others. But biblical hope means you have an expectation of something pleasant. Let me just say this to you, a parenthetical statement, because as you know, some of you know, that you watch my little show, The Oasis. The answers to depression are in the Bible. And it's really the responsibility of pastors and preachers to bring it out. But we don't always find that the case either. The answers to anxiety are in the Bible. They're there, sitting right in front of you. But we don't always mind them for what they're worth. It's the word of God. God cannot lie. God cannot tell an untruth. God cannot offer you hope thinking, I hope this works out. When God says there's hope, that means that you should anticipate with pleasure that this is going to work out very well. That's biblical hope, and it's intricately connected to faith. Real biblical faith that this is going to happen. This is how we would look at it. This is how it's going to happen. And we read here in verse 19 that the hope that we have is an anchor for the soul. That's a great word picture, anchor. Because we understand what anchors are for, related to ships. So the anchor is put out in front of the bow of the ship, and the ship will be able to pivot around the anchor during a storm. And the ship is going to be safe, so it won't capsize. And think about this. We're told that we have the promises of God as an anchor for the soul. That doesn't mean we're not going to have storms. It just means that the anchor is set out before us, and no matter what way the waves come and the winds blow and whatever else may happen on the sea of life, we are not going to capsize. We are not going to capsize. We're not going down. Is there any hope? And I prefaced my remarks by saying in any Christian congregation that's even slightly educated in the Bible, they're going to say, oh, amen, yes, there's hope. But do you really believe it? That's the question. I can't tell you enough that what you really believe is always exhibited in your behavior. And I just mentioned this a couple minutes ago. I mean, even the way you sit, your body language, in other words. Languages, there's many languages, and I just don't mean from dialects of various countries or ethnic groups. I'm talking about there's a lot of ways people speak. They speak with their body language. They speak with the countenance on their face. There's a lot of stories being told from people. 
if you just watch them long enough. And I want to start by telling you today that real hope that we get from God starts by letting go, which for most of us does not come easy, letting go. Now, I don't know really much about hunting, and I especially don't know much about hunting monkeys. However, I am told that unlike some maybe practices today who are chasing them around and chasing them up trees and all that, that years ago they had a different way of hunting monkeys. What they would do is they would put out a glass jar. I think we have some around here someplace. We used to a vase. You can look out on the ends here, you see a vase. What they would do is they would put the monkey's favorite food in the jar, with the neck is bottled up here, and the bottom is here with the food. So the monkey would put his hand in there. Now he's got the food, but as he tries to get his hand back out, he can't get it out. And apparently, monkeys, like a lot of us, are stubborn, and they just simply won't let go. Therefore, they become a meal for the hunter. We read in the scriptures that in the local congregation, known as a flock, that the devil's always seeking whom, which one can he devour. And the one he's going to devour is the person who won't let go. We heard that expression some years ago, let go and let God. More accurate to say let go and trust God, but it still stands as a good statement. Let go and let God. But the more you're holding on to things that are troubling you and disturbing you and hurting you and on and on and on, the more you won't let go, the more you become a prey here, as I spoke to you last week, here in the mind or the body. And you find yourself trapped and you're confused as to why you're trapped. But I'll say to you today, at the beginning of this message, that there is, in my mind, no way to have that perfect piece of Isaiah 26.3 until you begin to let go. By letting go, I'm not advocating irresponsibility. We have to do many things in life in which we are responsible for our actions, but not necessarily for the results it produces. For example, as a parent, there's an obligation and a responsibility to do your very best to raise your children and the Lord, to raise them right. But you are not responsible for the results. Yet many parents, other children are no longer children. They're 30s and 40s and older, but they cannot let go. I'm talking about the parents now. They will continue to go to church services and read the Bible, but never get to the place of a perfect peace and never know that the reason is is because their hand is stuck in a jar and they just won't let go. There is such a freedom in truly knowing Christ when you let go, starting with your own life, because if you can overcome the fear of death, you can overcome the fear of anything. And I'm not talking about, again, are you afraid to die and everybody is supposed to say, no, oh no, you know. But that's not really the truth. How do I know that? I've been at enough people's, Christian people's deathbed to watch the terror in their eyes, the fear, the anxiety. There's no expectation of everything they've heard, everything they've read, studied, gotten Sunday school all these years. There's no real expectation that when they leave the body and they're absent from the body, it's cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. And if that's not there, you don't have real hope. You don't have biblical hope. You have the hope that we use in the world. I hope so. I hope Jesus was right. Well, let me tell you something else. God is able and will impart to you something that cannot be imparted by simple intellect alone. It's a peace that we read in the Bible, passes understanding, surpasses understanding. And it's something that you just know and you can't really articulate it with words. You can quote the Bible verses, which is great. But God imparts to you a certain peace because you've let go. And then all of a sudden you find out. It was like Peter walking down the water. He was fine until he took his eyes off Jesus and realized he was walking on water in the midst of a huge storm. And then he sank. And Jesus asked him, why did you doubt? Why did you keep holding on to these old thoughts? So let's talk about God's thoughts. Many of you are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. I'll read it to you now. This is a paraphrase of it, but I'll read it to you. Where God says to Israel, specific to Israel, I know my thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you future and a hope. Now, in our King James Bible, it says an expected end. 
But I read the paraphrase for you so that you hear the word hope. I know the thoughts that I'm thinking towards you as a nation to give you peace and hope in the end. Now, though that's specifically for Israel, we make application for our life. I know God says to you today, I know the thoughts that I'm thinking towards you, that at the end is peace and hope. Well, we can fill in between the end and now and say, as Jesus said, I give you peace. I leave you peace. My peace, I leave you. Why don't I have peace, Pastor? Why? Because you got your hand in the jar and you won't let go. But your flesh says, I want this. And God says, no, 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 don't touch that. Or to do this. And God says, no, 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 don't do that. But we put a hand in the jar. We try to hold on to God at the same time. You find it doesn't work until you let go. Until you truly let go, it just simply doesn't work. It's not going to work because you're in violation of a basic principle of God. Simple as that. I don't know. I mean, actually, I do know in your case, but I know in general that things don't work out for people the way they always thought they would or wished they would or wanted them to. That's been my life story. And the more I hold on to what I wished and what I thought and what I hoped and what I was led to believe or whatever, the less peace I have. But until I let go, or after I let go, I should say, there is a peace that I can go about the Lord's business, my father's business, and I can go about my business carefree, which is different than being careless. Careless is an attitude. So I don't really care what happens to you. I don't even care what happens to myself. Now, I'm not talking about being careless. I'm talking about being carefree. Now, come on. I don't want you to say anything. I wish that you wouldn't respond to this. But let's get real. You talk about peace. You say, I can explain it to you in Hebrew and in Greek, and that's wonderful, that's great, but do you really have it? And the answer, in most cases, is no. How can you say that, Pastor? Because I am a pastor, and I've been a pastor for a long time. And I've been around Christians almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively, my entire adult life. And when I meet people who are in the world who are trusting in things that the Bible says is not going to work out, and they seem like they have hope, it will be disappointing eventually. That doesn't trouble me as much as being around people who say that they have hope, but don't really have the promises of God residing inside them so you can actually see it. So again, I use this 60s expression. Let's get real. Do you really have peace today? Oh, yes. Well, is it based on the weather, which is supposed to be very nice this week? Okay, that's great. But I'm telling you, I mean this literally. Watch Christians as the weather changes. And you'll see what illusory peace they were holding on to, because it's not God's peace. God's peace is not dependent on the weather. God's peace is not depending on the stock market. God's peace is not dependent on anything but himself. And you can't get it because your hand's in the jar. You know, I was listening, I heard just this week, Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. And every time I hear that song, I think to myself, I'm glad I didn't do it my way. Because at this late stage of life, my life, it would not have worked out so well. Do you really have peace? Do you really have hope? Because if you do, you're carefree today. I know the thoughts that I think toward you in Jeremiah 29, 11, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, my question is this. What if you really believe that? What if you really believe it? You know what would happen? You'd have no more nervous symptoms. That's the truth. I mean, you can prove that physiologically. Psychologically, you wouldn't have any more nervous symptoms because you've let go of all those things. They're not troubling you anymore. So we go to this story of the Cherokee grandfather who's talking to his grandson about inside every single person on the planet, there's two wolves. And one wolf is fierce, angry, and bitter, and hate-filled, and all these things. It's basically evil. One wolf is evil. Inside of everybody, one wolf is evil. And then the other wolf inside is peaceful and kind and at rest and so on. And so the question was asked by the grandson as the story was being told by the grandfather. Which wolf will live? Which one will survive? And the answer of the grandfather was simply this. The one you feed. And the Bible tells us feed our faith. But I'm telling you the truth today. Not every professing Christian feeds their faith. They feed their fears. They stoke their fears. 
You go out into a group of people who do not know Christ and a few in the group that do know Christ and profess they know Christ, and the conversation is identical. You see that stock market? I see the stock market every day. You say, well, what does it matter to you? You have no money in it. Yes, I do. Part of my retirement account is in there. What do I do? I go right on to the next story. Most news stories, I just read headlines. I get the idea. I mean, I read stories, don't get me wrong, but I can't read them all. I don't pay much attention to those things. Not that I'm not prudent, not that I'm not smart enough. I can't control it. I can't change it. So I'm not gonna have my hand in the jar. You don't have any peace. Listen, let me just give you some advice. If you ever say, oh, you know, I know somebody, they got two personalities. Well, here's the truth for you. Everybody has two, everybody, just like the wolves, story of the wolves. Everybody has two. It's just a question of which one's gonna thrive and live and which one's gonna die. Now, feeding the wolf that has the anger and the hatred and the bitterness and the wrath and the unbelief, he's easy to feed. He's more aggressive and more pushy than the other wolf, the other person inside you. Your flesh is more aggressive. Your carnal mind is more aggressive than the Holy Spirit is in the sense of the Spirit of God is gentle and good. I've told you, I think I've told you this. I know I've said it on the Oasis. I read all kinds of books. Occasionally I read books on business. And why? I just got a curious mind. And the author is popular and everybody's going to this guy and he has all this advice on how to be a success, which usually means making a lot of money, which I'm not interested in. One of the things that I've read is that among the things that you have to do, you have to walk quick. And when I read that and I heard that, I said, all the people that I've known that are confident people walk slowly. I mean, that's me. That was my experience. People who are confident and noble, rugged and tough, they didn't walk fast. They walked slow. I'm not saying walking slow is a sign of success. I'm just saying that it seems to me that we get some bad advice on a lot of things. The wolf inside you, filled with all the things that are not good, will live if you keep feeding him. But if you starve him and just refuse to give in to the thoughts of fear and of hatred and bitterness and whatever else it may be, and there's a lot, and feed your faith from the word of God, you're going to find the outcome is a lot more pleasant. And let me throw this in as well. Why is it that people could attend church services for their whole life and never really change? I don't mean they don't stop drinking, but you can do that in AA. I don't mean they don't stop even, whatever, sleeping around, but you could do that on your own, or they even have uh, clinics for sex addicts. I mean, why is it that people will do something again and again with absolutely no benefit from it? When we read in the 103rd Psalm, we're told not to forget the benefits of why we do what we do. The wolf you feed is the one that's going to survive and thrive, so pick one because only one's gonna live. And that brings me now to trials and tribulations. We read in Romans chapter five, verse three, verse four, and verse five, something very unusual. The apostle Paul says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Well, who glories in trials and tribulations? Well, evidently the apostle Paul and others. Because he says this, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, that's our subject, and hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, we just sang a song. Oh, how he loves you and me. And I challenge you during the song. Do you really, really believe that? Because any concept of love knows if you are the object of someone's love, you know that that person is benevolent, at least towards you. Anyone I trusted that I believed really loved me, I expected pleasant things. And it says here that tribulations or trials that we go through is working patience and that works experience and that we have hope. And then the love of God is shed abroad on the inside. Let me say this to you. So then it doesn't really matter what we've heard over the centuries you know why I don't go to church? I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. My response, whenever that was said to me, I'd always say, why don't you come out and show us the difference? Or if it was said just in general, I would say, that's fine, just don't be one of them. If you have said, I won't go because of the hypocrites, well, come on out and make a difference. Show us the real thing. But you see, that's just an excuse. 
Because most people who are calling others hypocrites are themselves hypocrites. That's why they don't like it. Because when you're the real deal, let me say it to you this way. I never have gone to the gym ever to say, what is everybody else doing today? Or I'm not coming back here because these people aren't really serious about exercise and lifting weights and strength training and boxing, whatever. I went for myself with my own goals, and I still do. It don't matter to me if someone's cheating or they're faking it or they're on steroids. It's not my business. I'm there to make myself fit and strong and so on. Why is it we don't apply some of these simple concepts to Christ? We're down to the bare bones. I mean, do you think maybe in your mind today you're sitting around a few people that you don't like right here in this fellowship because after all, you're doing it right and they're not and they're hypocrites. Well, I would advise you, exhort you rather, challenge you, show them the difference. Record some of your conversations you have at home and broadcast them so we can know that you're like this all the time, 24 hours a day. No. <laughs> no. We have tribulations because they take off the rough edges. And who likes tribulations? Well, no one. But here the Apostle Paul says we glory in tribulations because we have come to an understanding that those tribulations are working endurance in us. Patience. Endurance. We're able to endure more now than we could before. And that is giving us experience with God, real experience with God, not theoretical experience, real experience. And that experience is giving us hope that has a pleasant outcome in mind. And I challenge you today to look at yourself and ask yourself, are you really looking for a pleasant outcome? Or are you just hoping that the dice rolls seven on the first roll or 11? Oh, how he loves you and me. Uh-huh. Here's a teacher in front of a class. They're not terribly old, and they're certainly not unusually young, but enough to know that a $100 bill is good money when it's being offered for free. How many of you would like this $100 bill, says the teacher. They all raise their hand. They would have it for free. So she takes the bill and she crumples it up. So how many of you want it now? All hands still go up. She tosses it on the floor. She kicks it around. Or as we would say, kicks it to the curb. It's a little dirty. Same question. How many want it now? How many want it now? How many want it now? And the truth of it is that because it's been crumbled and kicked around and tested and tried and made dirty, it still has value. Jesus says to you that you are of more value than birds. That one bird, a sparrow, will not fall to the ground without the notice of God the Father the hairs of your head are all numbered. And he says, you are of much more value. Whether you've been kicked around and crumbled, sullied and dirtied and all of this, you still have value in the eyes of God. And the real victory comes when we believe that. I remember as a kid, one of my parents' friends, and then all of us kids, obviously we're all friends, we're going out together with the parents' And I remember him taking a dollar and just ripping it in half, which was like, wow. It was astonishing, you know? And then taping it back up together, and then he began to explain that it didn't matter because it was still worth a dollar, which uh, I've had a few torn dollars, and they worked fine when I handed it in. Do you understand that the grace of God covers you no matter what you've been through? You say people don't like me. Well, there could be reasons that they don't. But I like this phrase. I use it all the time. You know that I do because I say it so much. I really do enjoy a supernatural indifference to what people think of me. And why is that? Because I know how much he loves me. If God loves me and God's on my side, look, at, I'm telling you the truth. Not that I would name them, but I could name them. I know there's people who just don't like me. And I don't really know why. In some cases, I do know why. But in some cases, I just don't know why. But that does not keep me up. Last night, I slept so soundly, I couldn't believe the time had went by so quickly when I woke up this morning. Why is that? Because I'm not up at night thinking about who likes me. <laughs> but I go to bed knowing who loves me. And every one of you here, you've had your life crumpled and thrown on the floor and kicked to the curb and sullied and dirtied, but you're still of value to God. You've been depressed. You've been anxious. You've had terrible things happen to you in your life. We all have. But God still loves us. And there is hope, if you'd believe it. Oh, today's just a day. <laughs> Look, if you're not getting anything out of Christianity, why don't you just leave? 
Did you ever hear the story of the Palm Sunday Massacre? Hmm? Let me tell you about it. The day before Palm Sunday, many years ago now, about 30 years ago, I was sitting studying. My wife came in, and I just said to her, I think tomorrow this is the message I'm going to preach about. And at the altar call, I'm going to give an invitation for people to leave the church. <laughs> so she said, well, you better be prepared for the repercussions. I said, I'm prepared. So I went up there on this Palm Sunday because I knew what was happening in the church. For those of you who don't know the story, I had a silver serving plate. All during the message, it was covered with a nice-looking piece of linen. And I was talking about persecutions and trials and tribulations and all the things that happened that never destroyed churches. But I said, I found the one thing that has destroyed the church, the one tool Satan uses. And so I took the silver server, put it on the pulpit, took off the linen, and there was a little princess telephone. And I pulled it up, and I began these mock conversations. Hey, brother so-and-so, yeah, sister so-and-so, yeah. Do you hear what that pastor said? Did you hear what he said? And I went all through this conversation, and all of a sudden, you could feel the temperature in the room just getting more and more chilly. It was upsetting some people, but I knew it would because I knew that they were hypocrites. Their tongues were longer than their hair, some of the women. And you've been in churches where they say, yeah, if you're truly holy, you've got to have long hair. But they don't tell the women they better cut back on their tongue. So at the end, I gave an altar call. I said, now listen, you know and I know, some of you sitting here today, you're not behind the vision of this church. You're not with where we're going. So I said, as your pastor, I'm asking you to leave. Oh, man, you should have been there. <laughs> I mean, the people, some, not all, some of the people were really upset. One of the deacon's wives got up and started shouting, where's the love in this church? And that's a good question, sister. Where is the love? Because I haven't seen any come from you in years. The very reason why I proposed that question that day, why don't you leave the church? So about 30 of them left. They never came back. Why? Because you're cruel? Because you're, or maybe I'm just stupid? I'm not stupid and I'm not cruel, neither one. I knew that there were people that were stopping the church from going ahead by their unbelief, by their sin, by the way they were behaving. Now, I'm just giving you that as an example. If you're not really getting anything out of this, well, why are you hanging around? But you got your hands in the jar, and you say, well, I'm going to take this and that, but it's not working out for you, has it been? How is it that you hear people give stories of these testimonies and it makes you jealous? But God is not holding back on you. It's the hand in the jar. You can't let go of this, and so you're trying to get that promise from God, and it just don't work. You've got to let go of that and come over here and take the promise of God. Which wolf are you going to feed? We read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Where would you walk into a court of law and say, we're presenting nothing that you can see as evidence? The Bible, though, says that our faith in God and what he has said will bring forth the evidence eventually. It is what undergirds us and holds us together, that we have an actual real hope. We really believe this is going to end pleasantly for those of us who trust in Christ. So what is the problem? I was reading the story about elephants, which presumably was in Africa somewhere. And there are these massive, massive creatures. I mean, huge, right? Elephants are big. They were being held by these tiny, flimsy little ropes. And the person that was observing this asked the question of the trainers, or the people that were taking care of the elephants, like, how could this little tiny rope hold this elephant? You could easily break it. And this was the answer. And it has a lot of application for your life. He says, well, you see, we train them from when they're little, when that rope is enough to hold them. We never change the rope as they get older because they always assume they cannot break it. So it becomes psychological. You say, I'm this age and I'm that age. Name your age. It's all over for me. So the same tiny little rope that held you back when you were younger is still holding you now. And God says, you can break free from it. And you, well, it's always held me back. The only one holding you back is you. And that's the truth. Because God is not a respecter of persons. And he's not a respecter of age. If you look at the biographies of many famous people, not necessarily Christian people, some of them had some of their greatest achievements when they were older. I mean, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. But you tie it by a tiny little rope that's been on your ankle from who knows how long. And so you assume when God's word says no, with God, that was the message, what, one, two weeks ago? With God, nothing is impossible. Yet you say, well, I've been tied to this thing. And God says, nothing's impossible. Nothing is impossible. 
What is holding you back from having a pleasant expectation? And it's primarily tied to the next life. It has to be because there's so many surprises in this life that are not always that pleasant. But even in that, we have an anchor. The anchor is out in front of the bow. The storm is raging. What is the average experience for so many Christians? Their average response is what I wanted to say. They go on the rail and curse the storm. Ah, you know, they go on to the left rail and they curse the left. They go on the right rail and they curse the right. And God says, I'm your anchor. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. I'm the one that's going to hold you up in the storms. It's not that you're not going to see storms. You're going to see storms. You're in the storm now. But what I'm giving you here in the word is an anchor to hold you so that you could pivot around it and never be truly capsized. Now, that's the truth. Think about that. That there's nothing that's coming up against you now or will in the future that can capsize you. You're going to keep upright like a cork. You're going to keep coming to the top. But do you believe it? Or every time you're in a trouble, you say, well, this one's going to sink me. The last few didn't sink me, but this one's going to sink me. And God says, nothing would... Look, at the Titanic was supposed to be an unsinkable ship. Okay? Was it an unsinkable ship? No. It didn't get even halfway across the Atlantic, and it was sunk. Engineers were bragging about the first truly unsinkable ship. But there was a ship that was unsinkable. It was the one that Jesus was in when the storm arose on the Sea of Galilee and the apostles were saying, hey, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus said, where's your faith? You're not going to perish, not as long as I'm in the ship. And I told you the stories of me being on an airplane with my whole family. And we're bouncing, just like you see a ball bouncing in the air during one of these storms we had some years ago. And the woman over here, she was just so nervous, so frightened. Oh, dear me, oh, dear me. I said to her, I said, listen, I'm a pastor. As long as I'm on this plane, you're safe because God's not finished with my ministry, so we can't crash. <laughs> oh, thank God. What did I tell my mother? Thank God, she said. But the funny thing is, the unusual thing is that I actually believe that. I wasn't just saying, let me encourage her. So you know who I am. Have you any idea who I am? Let's turn on the radio. Listen to that guy. <laughs> That's me. No, I actually believe I'm not going to die a moment before God says, we're all done with you. And then, you know what? I'm good with that. Amen. I'm good with that. When God says, oh, you're all finished, maybe I won't be dead yet. And he says, you're all finished. I'm good with that too. Whatever he wants. But you cannot capsize. You cannot go down. If you really believe that, within the next half an hour, when you go home, you're going to be happy. You're going to be happy. Because you're all crumpled up and kicked to the curb, and that's all you've been looking at. Look at me. I'm not one of them fresh dollar bills, hundred dollar bills, come and kick to the curb. You're still worth a hundred dollars. It doesn't matter if it's been pressed off with an iron. Here's a crisp 100. What the one you found in the curb? It's still worth a hundred dollars. And so, you know, whatever we were, our limitations, all of that was still worth to God. And God works in those people that believe him, Amen. that truly, truly believe him. Do you believe him? Okay. Let's talk about the blessed hope. This is where it gets weird. Intelligent people talking about the return of Christ to the earth. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, you know what? I've read some very intelligent people like Hawking who had some very strange ideas in my mind about how we have to get off the planet because it's going to overheat and explode and all a nuclear war. He had all these ideas and we're going to travel to Mars. I'm under the understanding from listening to Elton John that Mars is cold. <laughs> he made a comparison, but I won't. You know, not a place to raise your kid. That's what he said. So Elton John says, no, you can't live there. And others are saying you can. And they're saying that we're strange. We're strange. We're the strange ones. Some of the brightest minds in the world are now making preparation to leave the planet. You know what it's like to get through an asteroid belt? Most say no because you don't, and I don't either. But it's not easy to reach Mars. It's not like you get on the freeway and just go to Mars. And yet, when I read a verse like this, they laugh at us. Well, go ahead and laugh. I can tell you, what I'm about to read is giving me a whole lot of peace. And further, I believe it. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Blessed hope. 
that our hope is lying in the fact that Christ will come, and I was just thinking about this a little while ago, and recreate this planet. If we go back and we listen to stories or read books of what paradise was like or the earth was like before we polluted it and half destroyed it, I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking, what's it going to be like when God recreates it? New heavens and a new earth. Now, if you're a little unsure about that, that's not going to bring you much comfort. But if you have real biblical hope, as I told you before, what it is, you're looking for a pleasant outcome to all of this, which at the moment doesn't look like it's that way. But God has given to the prophets how the whole thing's going to work out, right to the very end. And it works out well. That was Jeremiah 29, 11. What do you believe? Make sure you believe the Bible before you say, I believe the Bible. Because your behavior, your countenance, and everything about you is the proof of what you actually believe. We can all fool people, right? You smile and say things. But that may not be really how we feel or really what we're thinking. But when it's genuine, as I told you many years ago, my boss asked me, what is it with you? Do you eat birdseed for breakfast? I was always whistling or singing. I still whistle or sing. You know, there was once a young man walking on the beach and there was thousands of stranded starfish. Have you ever seen real starfish come out of the ocean? They need to get back in the water because once the sun comes up and it's hot, they're literally fried. Well, this boy was coming along and thousands of starfish throwing them back in the water, throwing them back in the water, throwing them back in the water. And the old man came and he said, what are you doing? So I'm saving these starfish. He said, there's thousands of them. He says, what you're doing is useless. It doesn't make a difference. He says, what you're doing doesn't make a difference. The boy, in his own wisdom, picked up the one starfish. He said, it makes a difference to this one. It don't matter. It shouldn't matter to all of you here who around you believes and doesn't believe. It shouldn't matter to you much to affect your faith or your hope, what everybody else does. It only matters to you what you believe and you believe in Christ. Then if you get a congregation, which is really what the Bible is talking about, when believers come together, self-explanatory, believers come together, it's augmented. That's why I go to bed on Saturday nights and I say, boy, tomorrow's church, get to play some music, get to sing, get to pray. Now again, I'm challenging you today. It's kind of a rhetorical slap in the face. If you don't know anything about boxing, good trainers, that's what they do. What'd you do wrong? And they slap you. Years ago, back when men, you know, went out and got uh, thousands of acres, but you didn't have fences. I'm talking about the West. Man would take out his son, the heir, and when they got to a certain spot, he'd slap him. Wow. So this is the end of our property. How do you remember? That cactus and that rock. Wow. Because the slap became a memory aid. Well, that's what boxing trainers do. Now get in there. Keep that right hand up. You remember, you don't forget. Well, I'm saying to you today, in one manner of speaking, it don't matter what's going on around you inside this fellowship. And I'm not saying that we have a lot of, you know, unbelief or bad people. I'm just saying that you are that one starfish. It matters to you that God touches your life. Then you have a bunch of starfish that have been saved. Well, you have a good deal going on. Lots of support. It matters to you. Cast your cares upon him because it matters to him. It may not matter to the old man who's saying, what you're doing is useless, but it matters to the one starfish. In Psalm 42, verse 5, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So it's not going so good just at the moment, but things can change. So here's a group of frogs, a colony of frogs, and they're hopping across a pond, presumably on lily pads. But whatever they were hopping on, two of them fell into a deep pit. All the other frogs gathered around, look at the two poor struggling frogs trying to get out. All the frogs just kept shaking their heads saying, give up, it's too far. You can't jump, you can't make it, it's impossible, and on, and on, and on. Finally, one frog gave up, and he died. The other frog kept going, and he leaped out. <laughs> so they were like, what made you keep on trying while the other guy didn't? Remember, all the other frogs were saying, you can't do it, you know, you can't do it. And by the way, so I don't forget, the only frogs that will get around you saying that is the ones who aren't doing it. Well, you can't do it because they're not doing it. Truth is, you can do it. So all the frogs who were trying to discourage, the pit's too deep, it's too far gone, it's too far lost. 
So one guy listened to him. The other frog explained to the colony, he said, well, I'm deaf. I just assumed everybody was cheering me on. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. People are going like this. You say, wow, they're cheering me on. I better try harder. We have to become deaf to the idiosyncrasies of professing Christians around us who are all saying, you can't do that. They're only saying that because they don't do it. Not that they can't, that they don't do it. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can. And there is hope. It just depends on if you take it. You know what? I'm going to have a time of prayer here. Pray for you. Sick in body, sick in mind. Troubles at home. Doesn't matter what we're praying for. We must believe that God is going to change the situation. All right. So then again, it doesn't matter what everybody else believes around you. It only matters what you believe. You believe the Lord. You believe the word of God. As we pray, we just trust that God is hearing us and that it's going to be a pleasant outcome. You know, speaking to you right back there, my sister, friend, chess partner, you may not know how many people got encouraged by your testimony. I know because they're talking to me. And people who are sick are saying, wow, what they're thinking is that if God will do it for her, he'll do it for me. See, that's why we need testimonies. Not only for your benefit, which is the obvious one, but then you go out and tell people. And they become encouraged. And they go back to the colony of frogs and say, every time you try to discourage me, I can't hear you. I'm deaf. Become deaf to unbelief. Become deaf to the naysayers. And my prayer, my personal prayer at home with God is this. We need testimonies, God. I'm not going through this because I got to spend another half an hour to justify my salary. I don't. I'm doing this because we need God now. We need him today. We need him when we have a sniffle or a cold or an allergy as much as we need him when we're going for open heart surgery. We need God now. We need God to touch us. So let's stand up this morning. The answer to the question, if you haven't guessed, is there any hope? The answer is yes, there is hope. There's hope in your situation right now, let alone for eternity. Holy Father, today we just pray in Jesus' mighty name. Illuminate our eyes to see that with you nothing is impossible. Nothing at all. There's nothing impossible. You are the God that changes people and changes things. And one day you're going to change this world, this earth, everything. And we have a pleasant expectation. That's our hope. But before we get there, Lord, we need to see the power and glory of the Lord in the land of the living here so that we are further encouraged, Lord. And then also our pains and our sicknesses and our diseases are all taken care of by you. Today, we just pray in Jesus' mighty name that you, O oh God, would just heal the sick and deliver the oppressed. Lord, today, let every wicked, evil spirit that has been coming up against the minds of your people be bound in Jesus' name. Amen. Those wicked, evil spirits that have taken advantage on your people, let them be bound in Jesus' mighty name. And set them free. Set your people free. Father, whatever is a bad diagnosis, as we've had plenty of them here in the church, be able to pray against it and see a change. And I'm thinking of a few. There's people standing right here right now. Then pray for a year ago or half a year ago, six months ago with a bad diagnosis, and they're here. They're here, standing here. Oh God, we bless your name and we praise you and thank you. And your word says, Oh thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. So we come, and we come expecting, and we come thanking you, and we come blessing you, for you truly are great and greatly to be praised. So this morning, church, as I said, you've been anointed with oil. We're here praying. Touch the hem of Jesus' garment and say within yourself, because the woman said it within herself too. She didn't say it outwardly. She said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. I will be healed. Reach out in your mind, your soul. And touch the hem of the garment of Jesus who said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. In the midst, touch the hem of his garment. Believe today and his willingness to heal, his willingness to deliver. Believe it. 
when you go out the door of this building today, go out with a pleasant expectation that things are going to change. You're still going to have tribulations. Don't mix that up. You're going to have trials. But we are able through Christ to say to the mountain, be thou taken up, be thou removed and cast into the sea. And I really do believe this is the time that we need that type of a demonstration of his power. Christ came to set the captives free. Amen. Not keep them captives and say, just wait till you get to heaven. That's certainly the ultimate goal. Be free in Christ. Amen. Let go. Don't be like the monkey. Let go, let go, let go. Amen. You can't control what's going on around you. You can only control what you do, what you think. Amen. Don't be worried about what other people are doing or what they're not doing. Just you be the starfish. God is touching, saving, refreshing, renewing. So, Father, we thank you again for our time together. We thank you for your promises. You're the one that said, anoint with oil, the prayer of faith will save the sick, heal the sick. You said it. Again, I'm looking forward to testimonies coming through the email, text messages, whatever it may be. Looking forward to hearing from you people about how you're changing circumstances, chasing sickness away, disease, and everything else that we have that comes up against us. We bless you. We praise you, O God. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's give the Lord a hand clap offering. We bless your name and praise you, O God. Hallelujah. All right. So this week, love God with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength. And love one another. Love one another. If we do that, we will fulfill everything in the Bible, everything God commands us to do. So, Lord, we thank you for another day, a Lord's Day, in which we have come to be encouraged in prayer and song, lift up your name, worship, encouraged in the Word of God, prayed for, shine, put back on us. We bless you. We praise you today for these things. Now, God, just remind us all this week to love you with all of the heart all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And remind us to love one another as well. We pray all these things today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You say amen with me. Amen. amen.